that salvation is not automatic. That there are people who are outside of your kingdom. That there are people who will receive your judgment, eternal judgment, severe judgment because of sin. And we recognize that that is the state of every human being apart from the saving power of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we look at our world today, it is clear that there is spiritual darkness all around, just as your word describes. Evil seems to prosper. Godliness seems to suffer. Now, Lord, we know in the big picture that it will not always be that way. And we know that it is actually not even as dire as we might think it is because nothing can stand in the way of your gospel. Nothing will hinder the growth of your church. And so we know that the end of the story is victory for Jesus Christ, for his people. But Lord, at the same time, as we look around us, our hearts are broken because there's darkness. There are people around us who are blinded by their sin and who don't seem to understand that there is judgment coming. And when we consider the Christian community, when we consider perhaps even our own church, and when we look into our own hearts, we readily confess, Father, that often we live as if there is no judgment coming. We forget that there is more to the Christian life than just an escape from hell. We forget that we are not called into this world just to sit back and enjoy, but that there is a mission. There is a mission that has eternal consequences. And our living of the Christian life and our fulfilling of that mission begins on a personal level, and it begins right here within our own local church. I think just about every one of us in here this morning, Lord, would easily and confidently say we long to see revival, awakening, spiritual awakening, And we pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us to remember where that begins. Any work of revival, any work of spiritual awakening that happens is a work of your spirit alone. It cannot be manufactured. It cannot be forced. It cannot be rushed. 
It is a work that only you can do through your spirit as you work in the hearts of people. But Lord, that doesn't mean that we just sit back and wait. It means that we ought to be praying, and that is where it begins for us, with prayer. And we confess, Father, that we have not prayed for revival as we ought to. We have not prayed for the advance of your kingdom, for the preaching of your gospel. We have not prayed for spiritual awakening like we, like we should. And we ask you to forgive us for that. Help us to remember that this is where revival begins. If we would seek it, we must pray. If we would see it, we must pray. And it must begin personally. We must pray for our own souls that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word, that you would bring a spiritual refreshment to our own hearts. And we must pray the same for our church, for one another, that you would awaken us from our spiritual slumber and draw us in to a renewed spiritual understanding and a renewed spiritual energy, something that only you can do in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and hearts up and awaken us. This is where it begins, with our prayers and with the work of your Spirit. But Lord, it also always involves your Word. And so we would readily confess that just as we struggle to remember to pray for this, we also forget and we neglect your word in our own lives. We cannot expect meaningful awakening or revival in our own hearts or in this church or in this community apart from your word. What you have revealed and so we pray that you would revive our hearts according to your word, personally. We pray that you would bring every one of us to the point where we hunger and thirst for your word, that it is our necessary spiritual food, that we would be willing to make sacrifices to feed on your word privately, to be where your word is taught, to grow in it and to minister it to one another. Help us to remember that fulfilling the mission that you have called us to begins by our own return to you, our own feasting on your word. But Lord, we pray that even beyond that, you would help us not to be content with merely gaining knowledge. But that we would be moved to take what you have taught us and minister it to others. That we would make disciples of one another. And then as we do that, Father, we pray that you would make us a shining light of biblical truth, of gospel truth, of your glory as you have revealed it to us, to the community around us. Awakening, revival, is not about building a crowd, Lord. <laughs> 
It's about faithfully proclaiming your word. It's about a return to your word that we would be renewed by it, that we would be transformed by it, that we would hunger and thirst for it. Lord, any growth that we experience apart from this is only superficial. It's weak. But growth in your word, it might be slower, but it is stronger. So, Father, as we come to you in prayer, and we ask that you would revive us, that you would give us life, that we would call upon your name, we pray that you would restore us and let your face shine on us, that we might be saved, that we might be given life, that we might be fed by your word and transformed. And then open our eyes to see that the work of ministry is right before us, even in this room today. Lord, as we look around this auditorium, we can see that the field is white unto harvest for, for biblical ministry, for making disciples. And from there, there is a white harvest in our community around us, desperate for gospel hope. Father, we pray that you would pull us away from lesser things. Revive our hearts this morning. Revive this church and use us as an instrument in your hands for revival in this community. For if the word doesn't matter and discipleship is not our goal and the gospel is not our message, then we have no basis to say we're your people. Bring us to that point this morning, Lord, where we remember what we're here for, where we remember what you have done for us. Transform us by the renewing of our minds through your word and make us effective ministers of your grace the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another and to the world around us. And let us not settle for anything less. And we pray that as we come to that conviction that you would show us practically, give us wisdom practically in what that should look like in each one of our lives and how we ought to carry that out. And then help us be willing to do it with urgency for the day is drawing near. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ and by his power and in his strength. Amen. If you would take your Bibles now and turn to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. Let's see if I can get the slides to come up here. Anyway, we're there. All right, there we go. 
Genesis chapter 7. Last week, as we were in chapter 6, we began looking at the account of Noah and the great flood. A story that no doubt every one of us has at least heard about. Most of us are familiar with it. Throughout this account of Noah and the great flood, there are two key words or two key concepts that are meant to capture our attention. Those words are judgment and rescue. Judgment and rescue. These are two contrasting threads that run all the way through this account, this record of the flood. In chapter 6, those key themes were introduced as God gave his assessment of mankind. God looked at the earth, he looked at all mankind, and this is what he concluded in chapter 6. Verse 5, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is a sweeping and total condemnation of mankind. That tells us the seriousness of sin. And then God goes on to proclaim as a result, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made made them. So here's God's assessment of mankind and then his response, the judgment that he is going to bring because of sin. And so as we looked at all of that, we learned in chapter 6 that the world was no longer the perfect creation that it was in chapters 1 and 2. It had been ruined by sin utterly devastated by sin. And we learned that sin is serious. That it's not just a mistake. It's not just um, a, a misunderstanding or an occasional trip up. Sin is outright rebellion against the Almighty God Himself. It is nothing less. And we saw that sin is deeply rooted in the hearts of all people. Every person has been ruined by this sin, by nature. And we learned that because of it, we are all accountable to God. And so we also learned that the only reasonable response from God, who is holy and pure and righteous and just, The only reasonable response is that he would punish eternally all who have rebelled against him. And so there is the theme of judgment running all through this. But alongside that theme of judgment, which is rooted in God's holiness and purity and righteousness and perfection and justice, we also see the theme of rescue. And that theme is rooted in the mercy and grace of God. And so we read in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, So Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. We read Noah walked with God. We saw there that it is possible to walk with God. It is possible to remain righteous and blameless in a sinful world, but it is only possible through the grace that God provides. It's not something we can manufacture on our own. 
There's something God must work in us. And so we see that God had set his divine and sovereign grace on Noah, that he was working in him godly character, that he was setting Noah apart from the, God, from the ungodly world. We saw that though God was going to unleash unspeakable judgment on the earth for sin, he was also going to sovereignly and graciously save a remnant of faithful ones whom he would use to replenish the earth and ultimately through whom he would fulfill his promise to Eve from chapter 3 that a deliverer would come who would once and for all conquer the influence of the devil. Now, this record of Noah and the great flood is crucial for us to consider. It is not just intriguing history. It's not just a nice story. It is meant to be a life-changing lesson for every one of us, even today. It teaches us how serious sin is, and it tells us how God is going to deal with it. And the New Testament uses this story as an illustration of, yes, an even greater judgment that is to come on this world. when God will once again wipe out all who have rebelled against him. So this record of Noah and the flood teaches us about God's judgment that is to come, but also about how God has graciously provided a way to escape from his judgment. And again, the New Testament teaches that Jesus Christ alone is that way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the only Savior, and in Him is the only way to be rescued from God's judgment. And so this story of Noah and the flood is a solemn call. It is a warning to flee from the wrath to come and to find refuge and salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And now as we come to chapter 7, these same themes are prominent, judgment and rescue. But now as we progress in the story, we see the fulfillment of it. We see the accomplishment of it. What God said was going to happen, happened. And it didn't just happen, it happened in exactly the way God said it was going to happen. God keeps His Word. God fulfills his promises. And so we must take his word and his promises seriously, and we must respond in faith and obedience. So let's look at his word now and let's read chapter 7. You'll follow along as I read. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. 
Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth, The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. It's a familiar story. I don't want us to be so familiar with it that we don't notice what the lesson is for us to learn. So this passage begins with the instructions that God gives in verses 1 through 4. Now God had already given specific instructions in chapter 6 for building the ark. Now He gives specific instructions for filling the ark and finalizing their preparations for the flood. Now, I want us to notice those crucial words at the very beginning of this chapter in verse 1. Then the Lord said. Then the Lord said. Uh, There is a whole sermon wrapped up in those words. And I'm not going to preach the whole sermon, but I do want us to pause here and look at those words. Those are some of the most powerful and terrifying and yet the most comforting words in the life of a Christian. Then the Lord said. Notice the name for God that is used here. The Lord. When you see that word in the Old Testament with all capital letters, it's telling us that the Hebrew name that is used is Yahweh. That's the covenant name for God. It's 
the name that he used to introduce himself to his covenant people. It is Jehovah, the great I am. And it is used in scripture in reference to his covenant people and in his saving work in their lives. It is a powerful name, but it is also an intimate name. There is great refuge, as we see, and there is great hope in the name of Yahweh. But then we read once again, the Lord said, this powerful and intimate God has spoken. And it is a good thing too, don't you think? Because if God had not spoken, Noah would have no idea that judgment is coming. No one would. And even further, the magnitude of what is about to happen is so far beyond anyone's ability to imagine. We talked about that last week, right? Can you imagine a universal flood? No, you can't. Can you imagine how the world broke up when that happened? No, you can't. We can't fathom something that great. Just like we cannot fathom what the judgment in the future is going to look like, even though we're told in Scripture that it's coming. We can't fathom. This is beyond mankind's ability to imagine. So even if Noah already knew, he would have no idea what to do about it. And in the same way, anything that we are to know about God must come from His Word, must come from what He reveals to us. We don't make this up. Contrary to what the world wants you to think, Christianity is not just a made-up religion. And the standards that we hold are not arbitrary. They are revealed by God. And anything we are to understand about this world and how it is supposed to function and what is wrong with it and what is to be done to make it right, it all must come from God's Word. Otherwise, we are just spinning our wheels. And if we are to understand what the future of this world looks like, that God is going to judge and there is only one way of salvation, then we must look to His Word and follow it. Otherwise, we are lost. This is why the Word of God is and must be the treasure of all treasures to God's people. This is why we must at all times be people of the book. What God says is our directive. It is the basis for how and why we live our lives. It is our guide for thinking and for action. God's people must be intensely interested in what God has to say. And we must be committed to responding to it. And here in verses 1-4, through four, God speaks and gives Noah specific instructions for entering the ark and for what is about to happen. And so continuing in verse 1, God says, what does He say? He says, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, once again, be careful here. We need to be careful. This is not saying that because Noah had been a good boy, God was going to save him. We've already seen that in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 8, verse 8 which talks about the grace that God, the favor that God shows on Noah. Verse 8 always must come before verse 9, which is how that grace manifests itself in his life. 
God had set his grace on Noah and made him righteous for the purpose of saving him, not on the basis of Noah's goodness, but on the basis of God's undeserved favor alone. That is a picture of how God saves his people, right? We read about that in Titus chapter 3, right? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis or not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So God calls Noah to salvation. And God covers every detail that is required for it. He's got all the bases covered. And so, in verses 2 and 3, he continues, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. Seven. He's got the numbers figured out here. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, male and his mate. Take a pair of animals that are not clean. Verse 3, seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also. Now, we already learned in chapter 6 that there would be two of every creature coming into the ark, one male and one female. And from those creatures, God would replenish the animal kingdom. But why does God mention seven pairs here? Well, did you notice he mentioned seven pairs of the clean animals? And he mentions seven pairs of the birds, which tells us that there is some sort of revealed sacrificial system already going on in here, even before Moses brings the law. And we don't know exactly how detailed it was, but there, had, there was something going on because we'll see in chapter 8, verse 20, that some of these animals were dedicated for the offerings and the sacrifices. And then very practically as well, in chapter 9, verse 3, we're going to see that some were dedicated for food. See, God's got all the bases covered to provide for them to escape this storm and to adequately replenish the population of the earth. He's got all, he cares about every detail. He has every detail planned and worked out. Then in verse 4, God explains what is going to happen, when it is going to happen, and how it is going to happen. He says, for in seven days, I will send rain on the earth. 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. You notice the condensing time frames from the beginning of Genesis until now. We've gone from 900 plus year lifespans to, uh, in chapter 6, verse 3, a 120 year window of time before God destroys the earth. And now time is drawing even nearer because he says there's a mere seven days left until it's all over. Right? There's, there's an urgency. There's a, there's a pressure building here, it seems. The time is drawing near. And yet God still in his mercy continues to give an opportunity for repentance. As he does today. And then he says how this flood is going to happen. I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, from what I understand, in our current atmospheric condition on the earth today, 
that kind of a storm is not possible. And we're going to see as we go throughout this chapter that we are observing a supernatural storm. This is not just a mere thunderstorm. But back then, 40 days and 40 nights of rain may have been quite possible when you consider the canopy uh, that was over the earth at that point. But we will see, as I said, this is a supernatural storm. This is something the likes of which the world has never seen. And it's not something Noah could imagine. It's not something he could think up on his own. What God is telling him that is about to happen and the solution that God is giving him to be delivered from what is about to happen is something that Noah could only listen to God and believe by faith. And if he is to survive the flood, he must do so by faith and in obedience to what God is telling him. There is no other way. And while every detail might not necessarily make sense to Noah in the moment, he must believe it because it is God's word, and he must follow. And that is just what he does. We read in Hebrews 11, verse 7, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. Why did he do it? In reverent fear. Because God said so. Constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And that brings us to our second consideration this morning, which is the obedience In verse 5, we see the obedience of Noah. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. It's becoming a theme, isn't it, for Noah's life? We saw in chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. We read again of Noah's obedience in verse 7 in this chapter. Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And then again in verse 13, on the very same day is the day that it began to rain. Noah and his sons entered the ark. This is the necessary response of Noah and his family if they are to be delivered from the flood. This is the evidence of true saving faith that they obeyed. And followed the word of the Lord. God has provided every detail and every opportunity. And he has sovereignly and graciously called them to enter the ark and be delivered from this judgment. Their responsibility is to obey, to believe God, and to obey. And this is, as I've mentioned before, a picture of how any person is to be saved and delivered from the judgment of God. God has not left any aspect of your salvation incomplete, unavailable. God hasn't met you halfway so that you will meet Him halfway. That's not how salvation works. When He said it is finished, He meant it. 
He has provided the all-sufficient way of salvation. And what He has called us to do in response is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's not work salvation. That's faith. That's what we are called to. And the Word of God says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we are told in Romans 10, that whoever, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There isn't a class distinction here. There isn't some performance that God is waiting for. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you followed and obeyed this call from Him? Have you come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the call to you today. To believe on Christ for salvation. Now, in this passage, we see not only the obedience of Noah, but we see some more obedience. It's all throughout this passage. What else do we see obeying? The animals. <laughs> we see the obedience of the animals. And in this, it's really not so much about the animals here. This is uh, a picture of the power and sovereignty of God who exercises irresistible authority even over the animal kingdom. So we read in verse 8 of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. Now why does it say God commanded Noah? Because God was commanding Noah to take them into the ark and to care for them and to make sure that they are preserved through this flood. So God had given him a responsibility but do you notice God didn't give Noah the responsibility to go out and find the animals? God took care of that. He brought them in. Here they come. And we read about it again in verses 14 through 16, that they all went into the ark with Noah. They went in as God had commanded. How did these animals travel and arrive at the ark on their own? How did that work? Well, the geography of the earth changed after the flood, during the flood, so we don't know that there were really big oceans separating land masses. We, maybe there were, we don't know, but um, it doesn't appear that migration was necessarily going to be a problem. But how did they just know to come? Was that not God directing them? Who else would it have been? God's the one who moved them. And then Noah, once again, was obedient to take them into the ark and make sure that they were properly cared for. But the fact that these animals just migrated at a particular time to a particular place shows the power of God. And it shows the care of God. The power and the care that He has over every aspect of His creation. Now, that's not all. We see the obedience of Noah. We see the obedience of the animals. Now, what else do we see? We see the obedience of the water, the elements. 
of nature itself, even the weather. And so we read in verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. So it actually happened. And again in verse 10, And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. It happened in exactly the way God said it would happen. Everything in this story, from the faith and obedience of Noah to the completion of the ark, to the migration of the animals, to the fall of the very first drop of rain, Every aspect happened by God's power exactly as God had planned it. We learn that in every square inch and in every molecule and in every detail of the earth and of nature itself, there is no resisting. There is no escaping the power and the authority and the sovereignty and the will of Almighty God. You think the election in November can do one thing to derail God's authority and plan for this world? Not a thing. Every aspect of creation, every animal, and even the weather itself bows at His command. And that brings us to our third consideration this morning. We've seen the instruction and the obedience. Uh oh, here we go again. Help me out. Now we need to see the flood. The flood itself. This is the climax of the passage. Or if I can insert a dad joke, this is the high water mark. And the water indeed was high. In this flood, we see the wrath of God poured out on the earth in a stunning way. And by looking at the language used in this passage to describe what happened, we see that this flood was catastrophic, universal, and complete. This was utter destruction. This was a catastrophic flood. It was sudden. It was severe, and it affected every square inch of the earth. We read in verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month. And by the way, we're not sure what kind of calendar they used back then. We, don't, we just don't know, okay? But in this passage, time is marked out by the years of Noah's life. And now it's important to see that the details of this passage, even the specifics that are given, even down to the day, show that this is not just a story or a myth. This is real history. And as we read on, we see on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of heaven were opened. And in that we see, this is clear, this is much more than just a mere storm. There is something supernatural going on here. Not only do the windows of heaven open up and dump rain on the earth, which is likely a, a reference to somehow that canopy breaking and emptying out on the earth. But it appears that even before that, the ground split apart and all the foundations of the great deep burst forth. That's referring to the, the water reservoirs under the ground that provided the springs and the rivers that we read about in creation. And the sudden catastrophic breaking apart of the earth 
would have included not just water, if you think about it. This would have included a massive worldwide earthquake. It likely would have involved some sort of volcanic eruptions when the entire geographic landscape of the earth all at once was suddenly broken up and reshuffled. And on top of that, we read in verse 12, And the rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights, just as God said it would. All the water on the planet was now gushing forth from the sky above and from the ground beneath. This, To say that this was catastrophic is actually an understatement for what happened. And not only was it a catastrophic flood, but it was a universal flood. We read about that in verses 17 to 20. Verse 17, we see that the waters rise high above the earth. We see in verse 19 that the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. That's about 22 and a half feet. See, God made sure that even that detail was covered, that the ark had no chance of running aground. He covered every mountain so high. We've already seen that this was a supernatural flood beyond what could normally occur by the earth's weather, weather patterns. And so when we think about that, when we remember that, then the idea of a flood being universal is not that actually that hard to believe, is it? Some have tried to say that this was just a large local flood or that it appeared universal to Noah's limited perspective. But the language of the text just does not allow for that. If it were a local flood, then migration would have been sufficient to escape it. And not all of the mountains under the whole heaven would have been covered. Furthermore, if this flood is not universal, then what does it say about the future judgment to which this flood points? No, there is no way around it. This flood covered the entire earth. And three times in, this ver- in these verses, we see that phrase, the waters prevailed. The idea there is a complete conquering dominance and victory over the earth. It is a complete undoing of creation. And the earth has now been returned to what it was in Genesis 1 verse 2 when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And that's it. This picture of universal judgment then brings back to our minds the fact that God exists. Only God could do what happened in this passage. It reminds us that God exists. And not only that, it reminds us that this God who exists holds us accountable and that he can do something about the sin in the world. There is no escape from God's judgment when it comes, and there is no loophole. And looking ahead to the judgment that is to come, when you come to Revelation chapter 20, we read about a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the great, or the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. 
and the books were open. And it talks about this judgment that God issues on all who are outside of Jesus Christ. And in verse 15 of Revelation 20, we read, If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Not one exception. No escape. Apart from Christ, everyone will give an account to God and answer for their own sin on their own. And they will be swept away by the waves of God's judgment. Which brings us to verses 21 to 23, where we see that this flood was not only catastrophic and universal, but it was also complete. Verse 21, all flesh died, all swarming creatures, all mankind. Verse 22, everything on the dry land. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. They were blotted out from the earth. Nothing escaped. There is there is an important repetition here in all, 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 everything, everyone. The emphasis here is showing us the severity of what happened and the urgency of the lesson we are to learn. Everyone and everything that is touched by sin deserves to be destroyed. Remember, We've talked about how serious our sin is. We are not just good people at heart who've gone the wrong way or have fallen prey to, a, to a, an unjust system. We are, every one of us, deeply entrenched in sin, separated from God. That's our nature. And judgment is coming. And when that judgment comes, it will be catastrophic. It will be universal. It will be complete and final. Nothing will escape giving an account to God. And all who are not found in Christ, having received the righteousness that only He can give, will be cast forever into eternal judgment. So this is not the kind of thing that we can put off. It's not the kind of thing that we can take lightly. And it's not the kind of thing that, God forbid, we would ignore. We cannot just ignore it and hope it goes away. Judgment is coming. And it is nearer now than it ever has been. This is the most urgent of warnings. God's patience is great. And He gives mankind an opportunity to repent. And He is still working for the gathering in of His people. Not one of His people will be lost. But God's patience will not wait. God's patience will not last. So my friends, it is time for you to open your eyes, for you to wake up and to turn from your sin and run to the Savior. Do not delay. That brings us finally to the good news in verses 23 and 24. We are told once again from the deliverance or from the rest of the rescue from judgment that God graciously and mercifully provides. There is a way of escape. And as catastrophic as this flood was, let's not forget Noah and his family were in the ark. 
So the chapter concludes with these words, Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. We'll talk more about that 150 days and how long they were in the ark and, and all of that as we get into chapter 8 and see what happens after the flood. But what we need to see here is that there was a remnant. There was a small group who had received the grace of God. There were some who by God's grace and by God's direction and provision alone survived the flood. Well, we learn something about God here, don't we? That He is holy and He will not tolerate sin. That He will judge and His judgment is severe, but it is just. But we also learned that God is merciful and He is gracious. He is slow to anger and He is abounding in steadfast love. He provides for mankind a way of escape from His judgment as only He can and though we don't deserve it. And He makes it possible to be reconciled to Him and to be made righteous before Him. And not only that, but He sovereignly leads His people to repent and believe in Him and to receive His free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so once again, my question to you is, have you received that grace? Have you been reconciled to God? Have you been born again? Are you in Christ? This record of the flood is meant to be a warning and meant to be a lesson to every one of us, both non-Christians and Christians alike. It is a warning of the seriousness of our sin and how grave our danger is because of it. It is a warning of our accountability for God, before God. It is a warning that God will again unleash judgment on the earth because of sin. We read more about that in Matthew 24 and in Luke 17. And as we get on into the portions of the New Testament that talk about what's coming in the future, we see that it is a promise of judgment, universal judgment. But we also see here a lesson that there is a way to be saved. That there is a way to be delivered from this judgment. But it is only through the grace of that God Himself provides. It is only through the one Savior, Jesus Christ. It is only through faith in Him as Savior and Lord. As we read in John 3, whoever believes in the Son, that's Jesus, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Here are the two humanities, those who are in Christ and those who aren't, those who will receive eternal life and those who will receive eternal condemnation. Friends, if you are not in Christ today, if you have not repented of your sin, if you have not turned to Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then God's eternal wrath rests on you today. And you are condemned already. You are in grave danger and God's eternal judgment could fall on you at any given moment. And so I plead with you today, do not delay. Put your faith in Christ. Come to Him as your Savior and Lord. 
As we close, I want us to hear some practical instruction from the Apostle Peter who takes the lessons of the flood and applies them to the lives of Christians. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I want us to listen to what the Apostle Peter has to say about how this story of the flood ought to affect our lives, even as Christians today. I want to pick up in the middle of verse 1. He says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? All right, that's the day we live in. There are scoffers. There are people who believe that because they haven't seen a worldwide scale of God's judgment before, that it can't happen. That's exactly what went on in Noah's day too. And we're warned about that attitude. Middle of verse 4. Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There is judgment coming. Why does he delay? Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of that which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? By the way, that's not a question. That's a statement. Because this is going to happen, this is the kind of person you ought to be, living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. In verse 13, But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, on the basis of all this, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. 
Why does He delay? So that you have an opportunity to repent and be saved. And so that others do too. And in the meantime, while we wait for God to fulfill His word and His promise and bring this judgment, we look at that future day as a day of deliverance if we're in Christ. Because we will see our Savior face to face. But we ought to live our life today in holiness, in devotion to Him, and with a sense of urgency as we look at those around us who are condemned. We look at them with compassion, longing to see them know the deliverance that we have experienced. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Flood, the story of how God delivered Noah and what he did to the earth because of sin is an incredibly practical passage. And it ought to change the way we think and the way we live. Let's pray together.